Welcome to the Environment Journal podcast, which is brought to you in association with Vortex IoT, a market leader in hyperlocal air quality monitoring and innovative clean tech solutions for smart cities. For further information, visit www.vortexiot.com. Hello, my name is Stephen Sorrell, and I'm an author, commentator and advisor on climate change, low carbon and renewable energy. Every month in this series, I will be speaking to some of the key figures in sustainability and asking them about the work they are doing, the beliefs they have on climate change, global warming and their visions for the future. In this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Nick Chater, who is a professor of behavioural science in Warwick Business School's Behavioural Science Group. He is an advisor to the Committee on Climate Change and author of the paper, Net Zero After COVID, Behavioural Principles for Building Back Better, which was included in the pack for the Sixth Carbon Budget, published in December last year. Welcome, Professor Chater. Thank you. I've wanted to cover behaviour change in this series of podcasts for some time, yet the more I read into the subject, the less qualified I feel about actually asking you the questions. So, um, but it would probably be good if you'd address this as a discussion with somebody fairly new to the subject matter. I want to come on to your paper for the Committee on Climate Change on COVID. But before we do that, in general terms, what do you think the likelihood is over the next decade that behaviour change for climate change can actually be achieved? Yes, well, I think it's a very good question, Stephen. And I, I'm fairly hopeful that there will be some behavioural change, but it won't be the first thing to change. Um, I mean, in some ways, the, the fact that we've, um, the UK has achieved emissions reductions through greening the electricity supply is not accidental, of course, because that's something that's very, very discreet. Yes, yes. It doesn't involve lots of people having to change the way they behave. You just, the, the electricity is the same stuff as it comes out of your plug socket. So in a way, it's always e- easier to do the things that don't require uh, direct intervention in our lives or changing and changing our lives. So this will be the, the harder part of the problem. There are other, other tough nuts to crack, of course, as well. Um, but I do think there will be changes, yes. And I think those changes, are, are, are some, of, some of them are already starting to happen. Um, and I think we'll see more of them. Um, and the point you made earlier about the engagement of citizens in uh, the policymaking process, particularly about the climate, I think that's a really crucial one. I think to the extent that the strategy of any government were to be well, you're just going to have to stop doing X and Y and Z and we're going to phase these things out whether you like it or not um, and take choices away from you without consultation and engagement. That would be a very uh, very likely to be um, politically unsuccessful. Um, but I think to the extent that, that we see for things like the, the, the UK Climate Assembly and a number of um, uh, local climate assemblies, including one in Oxford, where, which I was involved with, yes. um, the, the, a, a representative sample of people from all backgrounds, when brought up to speed with what the issues are uh, and able to, to debate with them, uh, with yes. groups about what they think should be done, tend to come up with actually quite, um, you know, quite uh, robust uh, recommendations. And I think that gives me a sense that there, are, there is actually an appetite in the country at large um, to, to, to make behavioural changes and other, other changes. Yes. I feel that there's, it's going to be something we necessarily dragged, uh, dragged to kicking and screaming. I think it's something that may happen 
um, with you know with, with, with a fair amount of support. But of course, it can affect people, different people in different ways. Actually, it's, it's funny you should mention the uh, um, the climate assembly in in Oxford because uh, last in last month's podcast we had the deputy leader of Oxford City Council telling us about all the the various uh, projects that they've got um, going there and certainly one of the one of the leading authorities. Um, go, going on to the the, the COVID paper then. Um, with, uh, in that paper, you use um, the pandemic as an example of how. Um, behaviour change has come about and use it as an exemplar of how it could come about. Was was that, was the subject matter, um, w- w- obviously without demeaning it in any way, j- just seen as a topical subject and perhaps some unique insights that helps explain this? Is, is that where it came from? Yes, yes. I mean, the, the in a way, the, the, the pandemic um, has sort of illustrated various behavioural change principles in a very dramatic way. Um, in a way that I think is very helpful to think when we're thinking about um, about about longer term changes. Um, so to give a couple of some illustrations, the the one of the things you've, we've seen in the, in the pandemic is having to change the way we work in very drastic ways. Yes, um, and of course also interacting with mask wearing and social distancing and all kinds of things, many of which are, are wholly negative. We just do not want to be doing those as soon as we can not. And indeed, we're now starting to move out of the very restricted phase. But um, but some, some, some changes in the way people are, uh, patterns of work. The fact, for example, that we're doing this interview um, remotely, which yes. we might not have done before, but quite possibly yes. traipsing across the country yes. uh, by, by <laughs> one of us two or the other of us, um, that's, that's a change that's actually well, an easy change to make. But of course, it's a change that didn't happen necessarily spontaneously because we're very, no. very rooted creatures, very rooted in our norms and habits. And um, one of the things that's very important about those norms and habits is that they're often not necessarily um, based on what's the easiest or best thing for us for us to do. It's not necessarily what we prefer. And it's a very easy mistake, I think, for policymakers to, to, to think, well, people are living their lives like this. And if we, if we if, if they have to live lives differently, if we suggest that they might, they'll hate it because yes. because they're living, yeah. they've chosen, they've voted with their feet. They've voted with their feet to go into the office every day or yes. with their feet to, to commute. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the, the the barriers that have, are stopping us are not are not uh, matters of choice. I think that's where the behavioural science is so fascinating. Let, let's talk about some um, some of the principles in your paper. But before we go to that, of course, you be aware that um, the activists, climate activists, have, have have effectively jumped on this, haven't they? And and, and rightly so. So they they've they've said. Um, COVID has essentially um, demonstrated that a lot of the things we were told were impossible are in fact not impossible at all. Flying less, travelling less, um, uh, less business travel, um, less cars on the road um, and so on. And of course, leading to the benefits, quieter roads, cleaner air, um, more apparent nature, less stress, and 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 so on. So it has been a very interesting example, I think, and and I think possibly we've all been a bit shocked about how those changes have been encompassed by by the people of the UK. I, I think it is astonishing, actually, and, and I think that's that's also true. I mean, it's true around the world where these similar measures have been introduced. That in general, and there are certain exceptions, but in general, they've been incredibly well. Um, well received by the public and mostly well adhered to too. Um, yes, I think that was very hard hard to be sure that would happen. 
I think there are, and, and in terms of why, why we were able to make those big transitions, I think, I think there are sort of three, sort of three key behavioral principles, which I talk about in the, in the report that you mentioned. Yes. I think one is this general phenomenon called the power law of practice, which is a very, in some sense, an obvious point that when you do something more, you get better at it and, it, and you get quicker and it gets cheaper if you're a business doing something. And whatever, whatever measure you take, practice just makes things easier and easier and easier. Um, and we all know that intuitively. And the power law of practice actually says there's a particular mathematical form that has, um, which is very, very predictable. So you can see, if you see how much, how much pe uh, people are getting quicker at doing whatever it is, um, yes. in the, for a month, you can think, well, in the second month, it's going to be this much quicker. In the third month, it's going to yeah. be this much quicker. It's not absolutely perfect, but it's a pretty good clue. And in fact, as it happens, that very same law is applicable to... Um, so to, to businesses producing things like um, solar solar panels or, or wind. Yes. So you've seen these very very extraordinary uh, drops in in uh, the cost of, of wind and solar, and indeed batteries, and they follow the same the same law. And interesting this is the side, but it's an interesting point that again for policymakers it's very natural to think well the price of batteries now is about whatever it is probably to be pretty similar in ten years and probably pretty similar in twenty years might go down a bit. But by looking at these power laws, you can th you can make a pretty good stab at where they will be, and often the, the, the reductions are pretty drastic, and yes. we've seen incredibly yeah. fast changes. But the thing is, that's true for individual behaviour as well. Yes, if you're starting to get used to doing something in a new way, the power law of practice will say you'll be surprised once we do it for, do it for a bit, you'll find oh this is easier than the way I was doing it before. Okay, let's go on to the second one then. The, the this idea of of uh, status quo. Yes, yes. So the so the first point is that as we do new things, we get quicker and better at them. But the other is that whether we think we like something or not is a lot, often a lot determined by what, what we're used to. So whatever the status quo is, we tend to think, and I mentioned this in the context of policymakers before, uh, but as individuals, we tend to think, well, this is the way we do it. I, I guess this must be what we like. Um, so I think in a world without any electric vehicles, the the, the mere thought of an electric vehicle for many people seems to have that's just, well, it's got to be terrible. Uh, there's got to be yes. something terribly wrong with it. I don't know what it is, but I mean, if, if they were so great, they would, you know, we'd all be driving around in them. So there must be something, you know, that must be sort of, you know, sort of uh, glorified milk floats or something of these lines. And it's so there's this sense of whatever the status quo is must be, um, must be what we, what we prefer. And, but actually, of course, when you're forced to make a change, as we have been during the pandemic, we rapidly realise that, oh, actually, there's a new status quo. I mean, now we're quite liking that. Um, and so we can make big, bigger transitions than we think. So I think this is a, an argument, if you're thinking about policymakers, both at local and uh, national government level, that, that often slightly more radical changes than, than people expect are, are really quite appealing. Because once you've made that status quo shift, once you, 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 you often get used to it and actually like it. Now, I, I want to say two things about this. The one, one is the sort of basic science point behind this, that as this status quo effects come, come in large part because the brain is essentially recording the world in a relative kind of way. So we don't really know. For example, think about cars um, going on the road. Yes. Um, I, I live on a residential street, as many of us do, and the, the, um, the, 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 the limit now is 20 miles an hour. But my brain isn't really able to process car velocities accurately enough to know the difference between 20 and 30. I mean, mm. no idea. But, yes. but once upon a time, they were shooting past at 30 miles an hour. Now they're shooting past at 20 miles an hour. In terms of how fearful that makes me feel or how worried I'd be for my children and so on, that's, you know, it, it just doesn't make much difference to me. Because when I, when I see a, a car moving at a certain speed, I'm judging it compared to other cars moving yes. on, on the same road at the same time. 
but particularly quick car, I think, oh, that's dangerous driving. A particularly slow car, I think that's particularly slow. But I have no real absolute sense. I'm always comparing. So if you slow the entire road down or speed it up, I don't notice that very much. Yeah. Now, the trouble is, of course, that in objective terms, it, the, 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 the absolutes really, really matter. So if we think about road uh, traffic accidents and how, how likely, likely you are to have uh, somebody die, obviously the difference between 20 and 30 is a monumentally large difference and it really drastically affects the, the safety. So now in a world where you have a norm of 30, we're used to 30, you think, well, 30 is normal, slower than 30 is a bit too slow and faster yes. is a bit too quick. So if you say, well, we're going to go from 30 to 20, and indeed, of course, many, many towns have done this in the last decade or so, then there will be an here, here, an intuitive reaction from many people to think, well, oh, that's that's just all that we're too slow. We talk yes. about it, it'd be absolutely terrible. We won't be able to bear the, you know, the incredible pain of slow driving. Um, and of course, once you've done it for a, you know, a week or so, it's completely normal. And no, I, I never ever find myself sort of finding my uh, feeling enormously frustrated by trundling at the 20 miles an hour yeah. of my road. Yeah. That's what I'm used to now. Yes. In terms of the degree of additional safety that benefits that has, both for me, but also crucially for, for pedestrians and cyclists, that's enormous. But this general yeah. point, I think, is, is so important that um, where, whenever we are at a particular norm, um, it seems like changing away from that norm is going to be really, really difficult. I mean, another one would be um, food. So if you think about the amount of food an average person eats, which is actually is red meat, say, and most red meat is not, it's quite problematic for uh, for carbon emissions through its various indirect effects, methane and so on, yes, as well as, as carbon. Um, then you know, thinking, well, we, we, we need collectively to, to eat you know, substantially less meat. Say we just look at a modest target of 20% reduction. Yes. Um, starting from a particular point, somebody who's eating a certain diet will think, oh, that's, you know, I'm yeah. losing a meal and a half a week of meat. This is, <laughs> I can't bear it. Um, but of course, in reality, um, having made that shift, it's, it's incredibly easy. Um, it, you just get totally used to it. This podcast has been brought to you by environmentjournal.online and airqualitynews.com. Environment Journal and Air Quality News deliver features, opinion and daily breaking news across many sectors, including sustainability, energy, waste, net zero, climate change, air quality, housing and transport. Last month, more than 170,000 people accessed its content online, viewing over 210,000 pages on the websites. To stay fully informed with all the latest developments, you can sign up for the free newsletters on both environmentjournal.online and airqualitynews.com. And if you want to comment on this podcast or would like to contribute to future episodes, then do get in touch via hello at environmentjournal.online. Let's go on to the um, the third principle then of social or unwritten rules. Yes, yes. So I think this is one of the most um, important and understate, uh, underappreciated aspects of human nature, really, at least not necessarily for us as individuals going about our daily lives. But as soon as we think of ourselves as policymakers, at least of a certain kind, we tend to think, ah, well, as you were saying earlier, individuals are, are consumers, 
they've got their interests, they're trying to maximize their, their interests, they're trying to get things as cheap as they can, so that's the only reason they buy electricity, they're trying to get them the cheapest price. And so we have this sort of very sort of um, individualistic and slightly self-serving conception of humanity, which we know to be totally nonsense about ourselves and our families and the people we know. That's not true at yes. all. But this kind of model that, we, that, that, that when we're thinking about policy, we tend to adopt uh, comes, comes into play. And I think that's a bit, really quite a dangerous model. Um, the alternative, or an alternative, is to, to realise that, that human beings are naturally collaborative creatures. And one of the things that makes us so different, actually, from many, many other, other animals um, is that we're astonishingly good at working together in, incred in incredibly flexible ways. Um, so we can, we can make joint plans and agreements and think, well, let's, let's do it like this. Let's play by these rules. Let's, let's all work together to this task. And we really like that. It's not an accident that we do. Most of us are really, really, um, our lives are given meaning by, by joint projects. Yes. Small joint projects with yes. our own family or friends it could be working in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a business or a government department or um, in any context, but, or, or not-for-profit not, not organisation for whatever end. But our, indeed, for that matter, thinking about you know, sports teams and all kinds of um, collective activities, suppliers, yeah. goes on, where one's meaning and pleasure is given by doing things together according to agreed plans and rules. So this sense that, we, 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 that, that, that we're a fundamentally collaborative species is, is underpinned by, by what we call a social contract, a very idea, old idea from, from political philosophy for many centuries. The idea that implicitly, when we're deciding how to, to, to live, we're not really asking what's best for me. Of course, we are to some extent. We're thinking, you know, how do we, how do we want to live? You know, what rules do we want to live by? And there, I think the, this is where things like climate assemblies are very interesting, because when you're getting people to deliberate about how they want the world to be, they will often think, well, actually, I want to live by different rules. And actually, slightly, you know, slightly different rules will maybe personally be a bit of a pain, but on the other hand, for a collective good, they'll be worth it. And they'll have lots of positives for me and for my children and my children's children. Um, and that's a very natural way of thinking. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, so if one's thinking about um, how to deal with people who are natural collaborators and contract builders, you've got to engage them. We as citizens have to be part of the discussion. Um, the strategy the strategy can't be, well, we'll just shuffle a few prices around, a few subsidies here and there, and then the, 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 as it were, the market will take care of the rest. And we can't expect people to do anything other than pursue their own objectives. Um, I think it's quite a different picture. It's really we are up. We are up as yes. a citizenry for, for much more drastic changes than that. Um, not drastic in a, a negative way, but just, you know, things like you know just agreeing that you know, we want to, for example, going back to road safety, nothing to do with climate. Yeah. You know, we, well, let's have let's have lower speed limits in, in residential areas. Let's let's make smoking more difficult to uh, to continue with for everybody's benefit of everybody's health. People, you know, we are collectively wired to like doing this kind of thing. It occurs to me occasionally that on the national front, we, we sort of need a, um, a Professor Brian Cox type person to communicate climate science to the mainstream population. I mean, after all, you know, that fella's made physics seem sexy um, and has engaged with a whole range of generations of young people into the world of science. Is it really being made uh, well enough, this, from other ordinary people? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very good point that... Um... Yes, a Brian Cox for climate change uh, and environmental issue would be fantastic. Brian Cox fancies branching out, but yes, I mean, absolutely, you're quite right that those and, and David Attenborough, of course, has played an incredibly important role 
I think he's a bit more on the biodiversity side, nature side, isn't he? Then, yeah, yeah, slightly. He's not, not yes, but he's. I think he has played a very important role in raising. Uh, yes, I agree. Concerns about the environment, um, and and that's that's been very very valuable. But clearly, yes, that that is important. And I think role models in in a more general sense is also very very important. So, if you're thinking about local authorities, um, I think it's really crucial that the good practice from local authorities who are doing a lot is visible and easy to copy by other local authorities because yeah. there's no point everybody reinventing the wheel. Or, and it's also not clear when you're starting out which things are actually going to be easy and work well versus which things are going to run into the sand and be terribly awkward. So having role models at every scale, and it's true at a national level too, so having, being able to take good practice from around the world is very important. And I think every, every individual and local government and national government we all have the natural tendency to think, well, if I've got to do this, I'm going to figure it out myself. I'm going to try and work out, I'll muddle through and do the best I can. And our natural instinct is very often not just to think, well, this is a problem that lots of people are facing. Let's see how, who's been doing it best. Let's borrow from them. Um, but I think we absolutely should be looking for, for, for role models, and they're very, very important. And actually, I mean, I think you know, the British the British government's record on, on, on some parts of... Um, uh, of addressing climate change has been quite good. Uh, there are genuine, I think, you know, in parts of what we've done, there are genuine role models. You certainly look to, to, to parts of Scandinavia for, for very impressive role models in other areas and other parts of the world too. But I think this question of not trying to invent everything from scratch and finding um, role models, both individuals and, uh, but also um, uh, you know, governments, local authorities, that's, that's a really powerful driver for change, I think. Now, one of your areas is uh, is language, and I, I just wanted to touch on terminology. Um, an old friend of mine um, called Warren Hatter has been involved, involved in behavioural science on the ground for many years, and he told me a story when I, I was down in Cornwall working there, um, and he was working on a scheme regarding the ECO, the Energy Company Obligation, whereby um, the larger energy firms have to pay effectively for insulation, external wall cladding and so on to insulate homes. Um, and um, he, he said to me, in the industry, we see free cladding as a no-brainer, but real people don't necessarily see it that way. So when introducing the opportunity to people, they framed the choice between a warm home and a cold home and avoided terms such as retrofitting, which people don't understand. And, and the use of those behavioural insights in, uh, to the team's existing expertise had a major impact. Is that something you've come across? No, absolutely. I think these, these ways these, things, these um, things are talked about is, is absolutely crucial. And I think there are some two points there. One is one is that it's something that if you're a policymaker, if you're a councillor, uh, if you're a, if you're a national government, you've got to got to pretest and think very carefully about the way you're messaging, and not really for any um, manipulative purpose. But they, that what will tend to happen if you don't think about it carefully is you'll produce a set of terms which seem entirely appropriate to the technical people who are involved in the project. So I think, oh, retrofitting is what we're doing. That's what we call it. So we'll tell everybody it's retrofitting, but then most of us think, well, what what's that? Is it good or bad? I mean, I'm quite happy with my house that it is. And so, so, so trying to give a sense of well, what, what the purpose of this thing is and, and how to communicate that purpose most clearly, I think that's very important. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, that's, it's getting, getting this sort of the narrative right and the terminology right is, is crucial. And I think another thing I'd say about that is that it's very important too that that is done in a way that's completely transparent. So the, 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 the worst thing we can do 
uh, well, the worst thing governments can do, or government of all scales can do, is to is to try to um, seem to be dressing things up in language, in, in friendly language, which makes people very, which makes things more palatable, which aren't really palatable. Uh, so I think the more it's the case, so it's got to be the case that that you know, there's no deception, everything's completely transparent. But I think, in my view, all the testing that you do of different messages and so on. Um, should we you know, sort of frame it like this or frame it like that? I'd like to see all that, and often it is, in fact, public domain. Um, so I don't. I think it's very important that there's no sense in either the media or the general public's mind that they're being sort of spun um, with regard to climate change, because these are this is the most serious and important thing we can do. We can't look like we're trying to, um, uh, to, to to push people in a direction they don't want to go without being transparent. But having said that, so we should be testing our messages, we should be doing that openly, anyone can look it up. But on the other hand, we still need to test our messages because if we don't, we're just going to give people you know, baffling yes. and, and, and yeah. uh, undigestible technical speak. Okay, very last point then, uh, uh, Nick, if I can ask you. I, I always try and ask my, my guests on the Environment Journal uh, podcast um, about their personal contributions towards climate change. So I've, I've got my passive house here in Leeds. I live a zero carbon life so, so far as I can, net zero as far as I can um, with the EV and all the rest of it. You have your behavioural science work and advocacy on the green agenda. But what about in your, in your private personal life? What, what do you try and do? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I, I feel a bit guilty here. So my, my, so in the last, I mean, I, I, I sadly don't yet have an electric vehicle, although I very much hope I will. I drive extremely little, probably two or 3,000 miles a year. Oh, well, that's good. And I haven't flown for quite a long time. My COVID has had that, that impact, but I'm really trying to, to reduce flying to almost nothing, um, even for academic meetings in the future. I mean, I, I will see how I get on with that, but I'm, I'm certainly intending to, to dramatically to ramp down flying. Um, and we have a, a pretty well insulated house with a lot of double glazing and insulation and so on. So that's not too bad. Uh, and I don't eat meat, um, though I do eat fish. So how do I give myself a sort of four to ten? More work required. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's all the work in progress, isn't it, on all this? Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That's been a, um, a very interesting discussion. And um, uh, I think I've learned something uh, a little bit over and above what was in the report. So thanks very much for explaining it all to us this afternoon. Thank you very much, Stephen, for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. As usual, we've discussed some key issues in this podcast. If you have any comments on this episode or would like to make your voice heard, you can get in touch via email at hello at environmentjournal.online. And don't forget to subscribe through your podcast platform of choice. It will be good to hear from you. This podcast has been brought to you in association with Vortex IoT, a market leader in hyperlocal air quality monitoring and innovative clean tech solutions for smart cities. For further information, please visit www.vortexiot.com. Mm-hmm.